This is the Mormon Women Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hi, this is Elizabeth Osler, and I am one of the editors at the Mormon Women Project. And today I am speaking with Amber Richardson. And Amber is a storyteller with many credits in many mediums. She has produced a YouTube series, Splitting the Sky, and the podcast on Sovereign Wings. She's performed in festivals and plays such as Mother Wove the Morning by Carolyn Pearson. And one of the common threads running through her creative work is a desire to expand the female experience within a spiritual context. So welcome, Amber. We're very excited to be talking with you today. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation and really grateful too. Amazing. So where I'd like to start is what it means to you to be a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I feel like that question is always in flux. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the core, I guess, that never seems to fluctuate is that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has taught me how to have a personal relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And so I am faithful to those teachings by cultivating that relationship. And so sometimes that means that my relationship with the church is really healthy and happy. And sometimes that means I go through seasons of winter where I have a lot of questions and things to sort out. And recently I've come into this beautiful realization that Really, it's it's between me and God. And so long as my heart is true and uh, I'm moving in the world with integrity and I don't know, that everything is okay. Okay. <laughs> when did you have a um, of a being that you call God and how did your relationship start? I've had a, an awareness of God since I was very small, and I'm not totally sure where that came from. Uh, I was raised in an active home, and I uh, attended church um, weekly my entire life. And so I imagine it probably came through that uh, channel. But I, I recall saying prayers um, and feeling that kind of response or feedback early on in my childhood and um, it's just always been very real for me and so as I've grown older and continued to communicate through that channel if you will Mm -hmm. the relationship has grown and and borne fruit and so that yeah God continues to be a a kind of bastion in my life. And then when you are speaking of God, because I I know, like, for example, for me, when I say God, I'm meaning the partnership of Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Father. And so for you, is it, is God, what does God mean? Like, who exactly are you talking about when you're referencing God? 
for most of my life up until recently god uh referred to a male um heavenly mother wasn't really on my radar and um i would prefer like being in a place within our community where we could say things like god and goddess without mm-hmm. eyebrows i really love the feminine version of the word but yeah i think i i mean both of them together that their unified state is what it means to be a god okay yeah and how right now in your journey to um have a relationship with god what are some of the primary ways that you do that i practice a lot of meditation mm-hmm. uh, every day i think i i spend probably 15 minutes meditating and that's been helpful um i also do a lot of creative work with uh gospel related topics or themes i'm working on a book right now about women in the scriptures and so i've i found that creating something out of the gospel is a really lovely way for me to commune and to mm-hmm. the roots a little bit deeper in that mm-hmm. relationship. So there isn't a lot of like classic sitting down with my scriptures and reading a chapter every day, but I'm almost always working with holy texts and, and teaching and meditating. And those things seem to be very helpful. Okay. And I am, I've been noticing a real increase and it may just be the circles that I'm traveling in and the people that I'm um, interacting with that meditation is becoming a growing trend within our community as a way of communing, communing and expanding um, how one does pray and commune with the divine. And so what has meditation, one, if you don't mind, even if, um, what what does meditation look like for you? And um, if somebody is interested in this, what are some of the steps that you would recommend that they would take? No, I don't mind at all. So I think it would have been in 2013, I was in a very deep depression. And several times in that period, I felt God kind of direct me towards meditation. And at that point, the only kind of meditation I tried was the like, sit down and clear your mind and focus on your breathing. Mm-hmm. And at least for me, um, in the throes of depression, like trying to clear my mind and think of nothing was maybe worse. <laughs> than, sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's horrible, actually. Right. I tried it twice and then I was like god this is atrocious like I can't (laughs) keep doing this um and so I think I said I imagine like you have something else in mind so maybe if you can help me find someone like a mentor who can Mm -hmm. teach me what you have in mind you know I'm willing to try it but this is like I'm drawing the line here with this um and sometime within the next six months I made a new friend who was a kundalini instructor Mm -hmm. uh I from a very pragmatic, conservative, like Idaho family. Okay. And so, you know, I was like, oh, this is very woo woo. Like, 
about this, but I had commit, like I told God, you introduce me to somebody who can teach me and I'll do it. So I was uh-huh. like, oh, great, I guess I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started with a meditation called the Adi Shakti meditation. It's really old, a couple thousand years old, probably. Um, and it's in a, a language called Gurumukhi, mm. which is like a derivative of Sanskrit, I think, kind of okay. like Latin is a derivative of English or, you know, like the, the roots of English, maybe you would say. <laughs> Anyways, the meditation is about the Divine Mother. Um, mm. And I found that part of the reason I was so depressed was because I had had a series of experiences with God that had not turned out the way I had expected. And a lot of the language that I had to access God was really inundated with um, bad connotations, you know, like repentance, maybe. It just feels Mm -hmm. like a shameful word. And so I couldn't find my way back around into God. And this new language, um, these new words, as foreign and woo-woo as they felt Mm -hmm. Beginning didn't have any of that um, weight or baggage attached to them, and I was able to start contemplating and reconnecting mm-hmm. with God in a new way. And I think that was part of why it was so successful for me. But also, um, I sometimes joke that within within the Latter Day Saint faith, we we talk about how we have the fullness of the gospel. But David O. McKay mentioning meditation one time in 1975 is not the same thing as like a line of men who have been practicing meditation for thousands and thousands of years in India. Yeah. And um, I really believe that Zion, whenever we get there, that it's going to be this beautiful tapestry where we'll be weaving in mm-hmm. um, been maintained and developed all over the world. And so tapping into that tradition, um, there's just something about it that's deeper and, and different and real and very complementary to my faith um, once I opened up to the strangeness of it. Mm-hmm. I, I have found that to be true for me as well is, and um that when I'm when I open myself up to all that is available in this earth school, that it enriches my ability to be faithful and commune with the divine. And as I've been studying some of your work in preparation for this interview, one of the things that um, really jumped out to me was that as I was perceiving you as a seeker as somebody who is willing to um, go out and find things that are happening in this world and bring them back to us. So you're seeking, going out and bringing it back to the tribe. And in some ways it reminds me of how Joseph Smith was as well, that he was going about seeking things and then bringing them back and saying, hey, you know, like these traditions and these ways are can enrich us and and i think it's in keeping too with the you know an embodiment of the 13th article of faith of um you know that we're gonna search out things that are honest true and chaste and benevolent and and bring them back and it sounds to me that as you were talking about this meditation that that was very much in the spirit of that oh 
Thank you. That um, <laughs> does capture pretty well the pattern that I operate <laughs> by. Yeah, I feel a strong connection to the community of Latter-day Saints and a lot of love. Um, I see how my leaders and family and friends have shaped my life and created opportunities for me. And it's the language that I speak the very best. And so it it seems like the right place to invest and to, to return the mm -hmm. gift. Um, yeah, and also maybe, I don't know, is that a sustainable practice <laughs> to kind of build where you stand? That's that's my thought process, but. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think it is, and I think it, it needs to be if we are going to thrive as a community. I think that a, a siloed protective approach that I think has been part of our MO, um, and understandably being a, a persecuted people in our early development that I can understand why, why that behavior happened. But I think it is important now that, that we do um, break through that and, and understand that, that there are a lot of things that we have yet to learn and that there are many people out there to learn it from that aren't of our tradition that can enrich us. And so I see people like you who are willing to do that and then in a very public way share that information as a way of strengthening our community and enriching it. Thank you. And you asked if there were resources I could share for anyone who might be interested in meditation? Yes, please. Okay. Um, so my guru, I guess you could call her, um, mm -hmm. named Felice Austin. She's a Kundalini instructor based in Ojai in California, and she's also a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I think her website is treeoflifekundaliniyoga.com. Kundalini, mm -hmm. K-U-N-D-A-L-I-N-I. Um, and she has a lot of resources kind of explaining the Kundalini tradition for uh, members of the church and vice versa. And she's just a really, really giving, lovely and intelligent woman. And mm. I'm really happy to be learning with her. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that resource. Um, and sharing that with our, the Mormon Women Project community. I want to um, touch back along the same lines that when you were saying that you were, when you were struggling with depression and when this kundalini practice came to you that it giving that one of the things that it gave you was a broader language of the feminine divine and and i've heard you speak in some of your other platforms about um heavenly the doctrine of the, of the heavenly mother being something that you really is important to you in our um in our faith and can you speak more about that, about what that doctrine means for you and how it impacts you? Absolutely. So that depression I was describing was just at the end of my undergraduate career at BYU. And there were a lot of factors that um, kind of led to the, <laughs> the collapse into that state. But one of them was that um, as a theater major, I was being exposed to ideas that I uh, never encountered growing up in Idaho, uh, like feminism and mm -hmm. uh, 
found myself really resonating with feminism and like uh, Kundalini actually, feminism gave me a language to start articulating some of the pain that I'd been carrying around my whole life. And mm-hmm. I, uh, before feminism, I didn't know it was okay to say that I had maybe felt some of that pain. And I also didn't really know how to say it. Mm. Um, and so feminism, uh, it, it gave me like tools that later uh, became like uh, s- tools of strength, you know, but at the start, it was just like opening up this old wound. And there was a lot that came out of that. And, mm. um, and so I, I, I don't know what everyone else's experience is like with Heavenly Mother, but sometimes I imagine that we must, there must be a similar, you know, thread. And for me, I had been carrying around all of this hurt my entire life. And a lot of it had been informed by things that I'd experienced as a small child. Um, But a lot of it had just been informed by growing up as a woman in our, in our society. Mm -hmm. And as those, as that wound was opened and started clearing out, I eventually found that there was this deep sense of loss uh, regarding a heavenly mother um, that I, I didn't know who I was because I couldn't see who I was going to become. And I, I missed that maternal love and influence. And the more acquainted I became with my wounds, the more acquainted I became with my grief. And Mm -hmm. um, it was a a really difficult process to acknowledge all of that and to witness all of that. But uh, the joy on the other side was that that honesty and vulnerability has led me to a relationship with that um, goddess, that mother figure. And um, that was... um, very much worth the price that I paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the price being that um, that it was out of depression that that information then came to you. Is that what you mean by the price? Yeah, that- I think the maybe the price could also describe. I think that there's a lot of um, really great uh, excitement and buzz surrounding. <laughs> like terms like vulnerability, you know, mm-hmm. and like, authenticity. Um, but <laughs> the, the dark side of vulnerability and authenticity is that sometimes you have to acknowledge that you are carrying deep, deep grief and deep pain. Yes. Yeah. And so the, the price I feel I paid to know Heavenly Mother was acknowledging that grief mm-hmm. and pain and really knowing it and mm-hmm. letting it it. And it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And and um echoes in my own journey that that what you're saying I can relate to. That there is like that that cost. Now I understand what you're what you mean by that. And but in in do you, have you found though that in being able to do that and being able to um hold both hold all of it as best you can and best you understand it that there's been um a a liberation and or a expansion of who you are and what you're capable of oh i'd say so 
I think that um, maybe you, if I remember correctly, you asked what does Heavenly Mother mean to me? Mm -hmm. She is everything. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean to downplay Heavenly Father or Christ and his role. Um, I, I truly believe that they are a unified family in a way that won't make sense to us um anytime soon Mm -hmm. but um, i mean having a vision in my mind's eye of the glory and love and uprightness and wholeness and majesty um of this eternal woman um it changes everything (laughs) and so Mm -hmm. I, I definitely have seen myself uh, rising to that slowly and, and um, you know, humanly, but there's a space now that I can fill and it's infinite and big and thrilling and joyful. And mm. it's a space that I want to fill and emulate. Um, whereas previously I wasn't sure, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah I, it was a vacuum and okay. anything can live in a vacuum. Right. Really horrible things really scary things or nothing you know and so to not have an absence anymore and instead to have a a picture and a presence um is thrilling and ennobling and um yeah yeah um i can imagine that that some people when they encounter this interview might feel challenged in the way that um, we're speaking about a heavenly mother and, and you did touch on it, but I think it, it warrants really unpacking that the, in building and actively building a relationship with heavenly mother, have you found that it has taken anything away from or undermined or any of those ways, your relationship with heavenly father or Jesus Christ or the role that they play in your faith? You know, I had heard that a few times um, from people, you know, when I had asked, why don't we talk about Heavenly Mother in years gone by and mm-hmm. heard, well, because they don't want you to play them against each other. You know, like the way that here on earth, like if, you're, if your dad tells you no and you might go ask your mom, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> and I was like, that's strange, but okay. <laughs> Um, and so I did have that concern that if I kind of went into the feminine divine full bore, that I might just get bored with uh-huh. Heavenly or Heavenly Father or Christ. Like I might just not care anymore. Um, and that has not been my experience. I, I will say that there has been about a year of intense and focused study on the feminine divine where I decided to kind of put the masculine on the back burner uh-huh. so that I could really figure out what was going on with the feminine divine. That wasn't a choice I made based out of ego. I felt very led to do that and it scared me a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that year kind of came to a close and I had learned what I needed to, it circled back. And what actually happened was I, <laughs> this is a strange way to articulate this, but I felt like I, I reapproached Heavenly Father after going on this long journey, getting to know my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I had really missed him. Uh-huh. Uh, 
And it was like in the reunion, it was almost like I loved him more yeah. because I understood in a, an infinitesimal way, right? I yeah. understood like who he was in relationship to this woman. Mm-hmm. And I understood how much he loved her. And, and I saw like their partnership and I saw in Christ this like deference and devotion to his mother and to the women around him. And so I would say that my study of Heavenly Mother has enhanced my relationship with my father and my brother. And enhanced really isn't a strong enough word. It it was pretty radical. <laughs> so Yeah, I I I feel that even through this um device that we're talking through, that like the the truthfulness and the um I'm deeply moved by what you just shared and how you experienced it and i and i can say the the same is true for me it's that because i had worked so hard to have a deep and rich relationship with heavenly father and jesus christ that that's where my longing came from that i wasn't satisfied to just know she existed because i had rich relationships with them i knew i could have a rich relationship with her and um and so i've had you know my own journey very much the same is that it, it in leaning into all of it it just expands all of it well, i love hearing your witness of that thank you for sharing yeah so in this journey and as you're studying this is this when what led you to what is becoming woman crowned yeah yeah Okay, do you want to speak some about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see. I Women in the scriptures actually came, a, a focus on women in the scriptures came before Heavenly Mother for me. Okay. Um, I was on the Eve train for a while. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I, I'm a super fan. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Like I need to make a t-shirt about it. <laughs> you make it so I can buy it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll do that business plan. Exactly. Um, so I, I did a lot of work with Eve's story and that was really exciting. And then that kind of opened my eyes to the other stories of women that are in, in Holy text. And I devoured those. Um, and it was around that time that Heavenly Mother started opening up. And, and so I did a lot of study on um, like Asherah and uh, like goddess symbols in ancient Sumeria and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the wisdom texts and all of that. And um, I, I, as that was happening, I, I was seeing this absence or excuse me, I was seeing a whole kind of like all of the texts that I was finding were really scholarly in nature and kind of mm-hmm. obscure and they're very dry, not interesting mm-hmm. to read and took a lot of brain power to make sense mm-hmm. of. Um, and I'm a storyteller. And, and so that's usually where the drive for research comes from. I'm looking for material to inform my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 
um, you talked about having a growing awareness of meditation kind of being on the rise in our community. And yeah. I would add to that, that there is this hunger and hunger for the divine feminine that seems to be on the rise. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, I guess as I was reading all this material and becoming acquainted with it, I thought, you know, somebody should do something with this and make it palatable. <laughs> like create some kind of resource um, that is going to feel, read more like a, a story perhaps, give people the, the resources they need for further study, but um, make it palatable. And so as I was, kind of thinking along those lines, I had a little breakthrough one day as I was pondering the divine feminine. I was reading in the Pearl of Great Price about Moses's encounter with God. And God tells him, I think in Moses chapter one, that Moses was created in the similitude of Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, and as I was sitting with that, at this point, I had this familiarity with all of these so-called obscured women in scriptures. And I knew that Moses's mother's name was Yohebed, and I knew that she put her baby into a basket and sent him down the Nile and that she was his wet nurse. And mm -hmm. I, my brain kind of clicked and I thought, oh, well, if Moses was created in similitude of Christ, then that must mean that his mother Yohebed was created in similitude of Heavenly Mother. Mm. And as my mind lighted on the thought, I could see so many parallels. Um, you know, Hebed, um, she is living in this, or she was, she was living in this very dangerous time. The Pharaoh had issued an edict that all of the boy babies would be killed. And for some reason, she still chose to, um, you know, have sex to potentially get pregnant. Mm. Um, there are mm -hmm. stories that suggest that actually her daughter Miriam exhibited the gift of prophecy as a little girl, and that it was at her daughter Miriam's beckoning that Yohebed and her husband Amran decided to conceive. Oh, wow. um, okay. Yeah, I've always felt strongly that um, Yohebed would not have done these things willy nilly. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. a happen or an accident that there was some will and probably some revelation involved. And so when her baby was three months old, she decided to make a basket out of bulrushes and um, pitch uh, tar and sent him down the Nile. Um, and so that image specifically of this mother, like cradling the boy who would be the savior of, of her people, mm -hmm. and him up and sending him down a watery canal into the arms of a second mother, um, spoke to me so much of Heavenly Mother's journey with her children and specifically with Christ. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing is the story comes full circle. And Miriam, her daughter, follows the baby down the river and ends up standing somewhere, maybe concealed by the rushes, as the Pharaoh's daughter picks up Moses from the water. And she says, in effect, like, hey, you probably need a wet nurse for that baby. And I know somebody who could help out. And so Yohebed ends up um, being the baby's wet nurse, which made me think of um, my own experience with Heavenly Mother just having no awareness of her and then suddenly, you know, coming into this awareness and realizing that she'd been there all along. I just hadn't mm -hmm. seen that this metaphor of um, being a wet nurse, like always being there and feeding her baby with, with the milk 
um, that mm -hmm. she used. Um, and then being forgotten, right? Moses didn't know his true identity until he was in his 40s, probably. Right. But eventually he came back to his identity. He would have come back to his knowledge of his mother. And mm -hmm. he would have fulfilled all of these prophecies and promises and and created this liberty and salvation and because of his mother's sacrifice. So, mm -hmm. um, and then I thought, oh my goodness, well, if that's the case, like there are so many patriarchs and men in the scriptures that I've been taught over my years at Seminary Institute are types of the father or the son. And sure. it must be the reason that there are women who typify our mother. And so I, thought, you know, what I know about our mother is that she's a queen and a priestess and a mother. So I <laughs> kind of broke up all of the women in the scriptures into those three categories. And I decided I'd start um, with the queens. Um, and so I started kind of culling their stories and, and doing more research into the traditions surrounding their stories and looking for access points into the divine feminine. I wrote a series of um, blog posts uh, called Crowned in Charity and Power about my initial findings. Um, and they were shortened down quite a bit. Um, and I had a photographer friend named Anna Killian approach me about that essay. She did a BFA at BYU in photography um, depicting the divine feminine. And she wanted to collaborate and create images based on the women that I had profiled. Mm. And so one thing led to another, and we decided to take the project to Kickstarter in the hopes of self-publishing a book with more of the research and her beautiful photos. And the whole thing manifested in a way that really, at least to this point, has kind of worked in harmony with that initial desire. I think that combining beautiful images with prose is a nice way to break up some of the information to make it palatable, especially to an audience that lives in this image-saturated world. Mm -hmm. it's also going to allow us to really create a diverse depiction of the feminine divine so many of these women in scriptures would have been dark and ethnic and beautiful and, and we're excited to be representing some of those ideas and and ethnicities and ethnicity, mm -hmm. yeah, within the pages of women crowned um and more than anything i guess i'm hoping to weave together the last five years of research in a way that will feel comfortable and familiar to people um, while still urging them forward towards more light and investigation. Mm -hmm. And so where is, it sounds like a very exciting project. And so where is it now in its development? Our Kickstarter closed about three weeks ago. If this airs in September, I guess I should say our Kickstarter closed at the end of May. Okay. Um, and so we were able to produce five of the photo shoots, five out of 10, before the Kickstarter launched. Um, we did photo shoots for Vashti, the queen married to King Lamoni in the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. the wife of um, Joseph of Egypt. Bathsheba and the woman with the crown of 12 stars. And so we still have five more shoots to go. Um, I have all of my research completed and my outlines are done. I actually need to go in and write the text now. Um, and it's easier to do once the photos are shot because I know what I'm trying to <laughs> uh, speak to, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so after that, ahead of us, we still need to design the book and get it edited and then produce it and publish it and distribute it. So we're hoping that the book will be ready by Mother's Day of 2020. That's what we're shooting for. So. And then, so in, in this process, what have you learned about femininity and faith and striving towards exaltation as a goddess in working on this project, Woman Crowned? Um, I would say, first of all, that just because so many of these themes and topics feel invisible doesn't mean that they are, um, mm-hmm. especially in an eternal schematic. Um, once I got past that veil of invisibility, um, I, I, feel, I feel like I'm just like splashing around in this endlessly deep <laughs> vibrant river like it's always flowing and it's just great and it's just the right temperature and I'm so happy here Uh and it's very real um I don't have all of the answers as to why it has to be veiled in the first place um Uh I'm still jury's still out on that one for me Mm -hmm. um it's I don't it's all it's all real I guess I would say um, and so anything that you have to do to exercise your faith, to access those mysteries is worth it. It's the best investment I've ever made, um, mm-hmm. in terms of the yield. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that's kind of a, a, a knowing that has been developing for a long time, but um i when i'm talking about women in the scriptures i'll often share this metaphor and it feels applicable here so in the beginning of my journey i i felt like i was in a wilderness just like a desert maybe somewhere in arizona like okay. very really sandy i'm all alone <laughs> endless blocks not the deep river that you're in now no not at all <laughs> okay and I'm wandering through this wilderness, just parched and, you know, mm. asking this guy, where is my mother? And just hearing the echo come back to me, it's so just depressing and horrid. And um, eventually, somewhere along my journey, I, you know, I'm like, I don't want to be alone, God. And I, I round a bend and there's a big, scary cactus waiting for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like. God, you're the worst. Like I didn't, <laughs> when I said I didn't want to be alone, I didn't mean like send me that thing. Uh-huh. Um, and, but I'm thirsty and I'm like, oh, I guess I have to, I guess I have to deal with this. Yeah. And so eventually I learned that the cactus um, had fruits and I, I could only access that fruit if I got really comfortable with the prickles and the thorns. And if I, was able to process my fear enough um, to befriend the cactus. Mm. Um, And I did, and I tasted her fruit, and it was good. And this encounter occurred over and over and over again. And with each repetition, I became braver and stronger and more comfortable here in this wilderness. (laughs) 
And eventually one day it just shifted and my eyes opened and I discovered that the wilderness was just an illusion. And it turns out I was in this verdant forest and the cactuses were trees and there was a river. And um, so I, I know that's pretty um, conceptual and maybe a little lofty even, but it's the best way I know how to communicate the change that I've experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and truly that at least in this aspect of my spirituality there are many that are still under construction and feel like wildernesses but at least here within the framework of my identity as a woman and the identity of my mother um i feel very much at home and i feel very um nourished and i feel like i exist in a place of abundance that would not have made any sense to me if you'd sat me down and told me this a few years ago Mm -hmm. yeah and what you share feels in this moment like an allegory and as um as I was imagining it and thinking about it and I and just the sheer wisdom in getting comfortable with with the prickly it's it's I I found in my own life in my faith but also just in being a human, how important it is that I learn to tolerate discomfort. Um, because on the other side of that are, is where um, it is through that process that growth happens for me and then abundance is um, achieved. It's I think that there's this idea that if something doesn't feel right or doesn't feel good, then it's not of God. And I just haven't found that to be the case in my life that a lot of times God hands me a, a cactus and is like, there you go. <laughs> you know, it's going to be painful, but it's going to, but it's what you got to do. I can echo that. I, that's definitely been my process, especially when it comes to the feminine divine. I, I can't speak for everyone, but I do remember that earlier on in the in the process, it felt like it was either denial, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like I can pretend that this doesn't affect me, and pretend's not quite the right word because I think denial isn't always so conscious, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I exist in a space where I don't acknowledge that actually I have questions. Actually, I'm really aching for my mother, or actually, I feel like I'm lost at sea. I don't know who I am. Right. Yeah. Um, I can exist in a space where I don't have to face those things or I have to face those things. Yeah. And really like, at least initially, those are the two options. And um, I see a lot of people who, you know, kind of stay in that first camp for a long time, stay where it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. And then I see people who don't know how to deal with the prickles um, and the prickles send them on a totally new journey in another yeah. direction. Um, and that's okay, but learning how to kind of be long-suffering, um, mm-hmm. to be truthful, for me, has ultimately resulted in uh, an abundance that I was not expecting <laughs> initially. Yeah. And I think, too, this is another way of of touching on what we were talking about earlier of um what it really means to be vulnerable and authentic. That there's, that, 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 that that's real work. And that 
going through the things that make us uncomfortable or terrify us or whatever it is, however it manifests in someone's life, is is just part of the work in in becoming like our heavenly parents. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think so. So I want I want to switch gears because we um, are running low on time because I I very much want to talk about on Sovereign Wings, your podcast. Can you for those of people who are um, listening or reading this who aren't familiar with Sovereign Wings? Can you stop on Sovereign Wings? Can you um, speak a little bit about what it is and how um, you came to create it? You mentioned at the top of the interview that I had once produced a, an interview series called Splitting the Sky. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a video within that series kind of go Mormon viral, <laughs> yeah, which we were not anticipating and was not the design of the project, but it happened anyways. And um, one of the results of that um experience was that we suddenly had a lot of women reaching out to us um, who were interested in being interviewed more than we could sustain. Mm. Um, and I, I was keeping track of their um, inquiries. And um, within a few months, the Me Too hashtag went viral. Mm-hmm. And I discovered, um, looking back at the inquiries that we'd received, that half of the women who'd reached out to us wanted to talk about sexual assault within a spiritual framework. Um, Which made sense. I think within the scope of splitting the sky, we had created a space that felt very safe and and nurturing. And we had touched on sexual assault briefly a few times, which I guess was enough to kind of clue people that that this was something that um, was an option. Mm -hmm. Um, so like I said, we weren't able to do anything with those inquiries. Um, but as I kind of sat down after the Me Too hashtag went viral and I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, I have the skill set and I definitely have a certain level of empathy for this experience. And so maybe I'd be a good person to facilitate the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that was what started it, to be totally honest. Um, I I prayed a lot to to know how to brand it and and what theme to pursue and was introduced to the concept of sovereignty, uh, which has really mentored me and been extremely relevant in the experiences I've had over the last year. And so I started doing interviews. Um, And then within about six months of beginning to conceptualize the project, um, I had a repressed memory of childhood rape come back, which mm. I'm not expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the project suddenly started looking very different. Um, I had a lot of new considerations to make and a fair amount of trauma that was suddenly affecting the mm-hmm. process. And um, But on the flip side, um, this project had given me a community of women who understood what I was experiencing, who could teach me how to cope and how to deal with it. And I'd been basically plopped down in the middle of the the sexual assault community network here in Utah County, where I live, um, which was miraculous 
so needed. Um, and so I started developing the project. Um, I work with a sex therapist named Tasha Diaz and mm-hmm. an event named me Warner and we um, together create the podcast and gatherings for women who want to meet up um, outside of the internet um, and it's been a deeply meaningful project but probably one of the most um, difficult and exhausting um, endeavors that I've <laughs> stepped into thus far in my creative life um mm-hmm. so we i i interview survivors sometimes they go by a pseudonym sometimes they use their name and i focus the interviews on their experience of healing i like to hear what has really worked for them and what's resonated um and we usually hear about the assault itself as well mm-hmm. um, and then each episode that follows one of the interviews, I sit down with Tasha Diaz, the sex therapist, and we kind of unpack the story and she highlights um, those elements of healing as her own insight and professional expertise to the conversation. So far, we've produced eight episodes. Um, I have eight more interviews that are currently sitting on my hard drive. Um, and I'm right in the middle of trying to figure out how to move forward with On Sovereign Wings. But mm. those eight episodes are available for listening on iTunes. Um, we also have an Instagram page, On Sovereign Wings. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been a really meaningful and, and beautiful endeavor um, and taught me a lot. I think it's a real gift to our community and I and I really appreciate the way in which you have framed those conversations and the fact that you take the time to unpack and expand on the experience. So I've li- I haven't listened to all eight of them. I think I've probably listened to four or five of them at this point. And um and that was one of the things that really was I know I've already said this, but really is a gift um, because I feel like not only are you creating a community where people can say, oh, I'm not the only one and there is a place where I can be seen and heard, but you're also creating a language. I, you know, this is something that I've really um, see, seen as a pattern in this conversation about how much language is important to you and how having the right language has really helped you and that here you are then giving language to survivors as a way to talk about what happened to them and to to find ways of healing and so thank you for doing that well thank you I, I appreciate your kind words and I appreciate you turning in and listening to a few I know that they're not um easy listening <laughs> so thank you yeah, and I and I do um and the thing is is that we do live in a in a shock culture and we do tend to get caught up in the the acts of violence or or violation that um and that, that and then a lot of times that's just where the story ends. So the fact that you put so much focus into the healing and what what the aftermath looks like, but also how one can be made whole again, and that being made whole is 
you know, is your right as a divine being is um, inspiring. So thank you for that too. Thank you, Elizabeth. I appreciate that. Um, what, I just have two, I have three more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up. So um, on this one, what is the thing having done these interviews now and living in this space and building this community, what do you want our community? So, um, you know, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to know about sexual assault? Ooh, that's a great question. I know it's so huge. And I've been thinking about it for several minutes. Trying to so many things. Um, I think the first thing I'd say is that um, we don't need to buy into the polarity and the sensational the sen sensationalization. That mm -hmm. seems like too many to be filled. Yeah the tendency the tendency to sensationalize there we go there you go um these stories uh i it's really my belief that typically when a survivor is ready to tell their story um they are telling their story because they have a desire for healing mm -hmm. and oftentimes people will interpret that as an attack or an affront mm -hmm. um against men, against the perpetrator, and I think very rarely is that the case. Mm -hmm. um, truthfully, in, in my own experience and in my studies um, within this realm, the healing journey for a, a perpetrator and a survivor is essentially the same, and it's what we've been describing. You have to be honest. <laughs> You have to be honest about what is yours to own and what is not. You have to be honest about how it's hurt you and how it's affected you. And you have to take all of those pieces to the source of healing. Mm -hmm. And if denial is present in our community's ability at large to step into the feminine experience, it is present even more so um, if you have experienced something like a, a traumatic violation or an assault. And generally, if a woman or a man, a survivor who has come out on the other side of that, they've done a considerable amount of work and oftentimes been pushed to their limits to break through that denial because they can't survive if they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and if that person has done that kind of work, then they understand that the denial a perpetrator is experiencing is as great, if not greater than the denial that a victim is experiencing. Um, and as outrageous as this sounds, I the, the depth of sorrow that I feel for perpetrators is uh, large. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very big um, because I know how hard it's been for me as someone who did nothing wrong, you know, yeah. to unpack and to... Um, to find healing, um, but to be on the other side of that is, um, I don't, it's, it's difficult for me to fathom how challenging that must be to heal and to return to your true mm -hmm. self. Um, and when a survivor raises their voice and says, this is what happened to me, 
almost always it's done um, out of a desire to protect themselves, to protect others, to give themselves a voice after they've had that voice taken from them. Mm -hmm. And it is an invitation to their perpetrator to walk that same path Mm -hmm. on their own, right, in their own sphere. But um, I think if we started interpreting these interactions in that way, it would create a lot more space for both perpetrators and victims to find healing. Um, And I, I think that at large, that's part of what's missing in our community. Um, But we also just have a a really difficult time tolerating the kind of pain that Mm -hmm. is at the heart of these stories. And until as a community, we can learn to sit with that pain. I don't think that sexual assault survivors are going to feel (laughs) um, the support that they need um, within the community. So in summary, I guess those would be my two takeaways. I think we don't need to buy into the polarity because it's really just um, generally not what's happening in someone's Mm -hmm. heart. And we also, you know, if we really want to help, we have to go a little deeper ourselves um, and really be able to sit with people in, in their loss and in their grief and in their trauma. Yeah. Which then just brings us back to our baptismal covenant of mourn with those who mourn and, you know, comfort those in need of comfort. And that it doesn't say fix it, right? Then it isn't as people come forward in our, in our lives, our job isn't to fix it. It is our job and our, and our covenants are to be with them in the journey. Yeah. And I, I know we're running out of time, but one more thing comes to mind. And that is that I think uh, it's really nearing the time when, um, as a community, we need to start understanding what trauma is and mm-hmm. how it and um, how it affects people's lives and spirits. Um, it's you said something earlier that um, really touched me. You you talked about how um, as you've kind of looked at. The, the things that I fill my time with that you've noticed that I tend to kind of go out and find tools and try to bring them back. And mm-hmm. there's still this strange division um, within the church, like that. I don't know if, if we feel that trauma studies are too secularized or what, um, or if it, the water's just not getting down the line and bishops aren't getting trained. Um, but for a lot of sexual assault survivors, it really feels like an either or. Like, yeah, they're going to go into their bishop and be completely misunderstood. I'm not going to be given the resources that they need to deal with the trauma that they've experienced. And so then they're kind of pushed outside of the faith community into these secular spaces, mm-hmm. um, which I think is great, right? I'm not there. I don't feel any fear about that. But um if you've experienced trauma within the faith community, like if it was a ward member or someone you met at BYU or a missionary or, or a home teacher or whatever, um, and usually it's someone you know, um, then experiencing that kind of disconnect and um, blindness uh, within your house of worship, it just really compounds the whole experience and it makes yeah. church feel really unsafe when you try to use your voice and it's pushed down again. Um, and when your trauma um, is just completely and blatantly misunderstood and not seen. And so 
I would hope that moving forward, that as we're able to kind of break down this polarity and reject it, <laughs> um, that we'll be able to start really educating ourselves and we'll be able to start understanding how this particular beast works um, mm -hmm. so that we give people compassion and tools rather than um, kind of a blank stare and, and judgment. I hope that doesn't sound too harsh, but I no. just hear this. So. Yeah, I don't think so. I think it's a necessary um, call to attention. And, and I have a similar hope issue that we can. And as you've been speaking, I, I keep thinking about in, I've been walking a journey over the last year and a half now of forgiveness. And, um, and a lot of what it has to do is around my own sexual assault. So, so the perpetrator and then those who were complicit in it as well. And one of the things that has been really helpful for me on this journey is reading Desmond Tutu's book that he wrote with his daughter, who I can't remember her name. It's called The Book of Forgiveness. And one of the things that he talks about in it is how when Christ appears to his disciples after the crucifixion, um, that he shows them his hands. And what um, Desmond Tutu says is that what he's doing is bearing witness of his story. That like this happened to me and showing the pain and the wounds of what happened to him. And that he just talks about how important it is in the healing and forgiving process that the victim is able to show the wounds and tell the story of how they got the wounds and that even our savior needed to do that. And so I think there is something about being able to, that for me personally, that was um, just, I mean, I don't have words of how it impacted me, but I feel like what you're doing with On Sovereign Wings is, is giving people permission to do the same. Well, I just want to say, I'm so sorry that you've had personal experience with this topic and I'm proud of you for whatever work you've done to move forward and to heal. And I, I know how, <laughs> how difficult and soul <laughs> Right. Wow. And I'm sorry that, it, that, that we're sisters in this, you know, I'm happy that we're sisters in faith and things. And I'm sorry that we're sisters in this. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But thank you for sharing that. I haven't heard that um, before. And that is, Pretty cool. Right? Pretty cool. I, yeah, I think it just, I think it gives, for me, it gave me more, even more power in in my voice to tell the story. Even, you know, that you're like, even the savior needed to tell their story, his story. Yeah. But there's, you know. Yeah. And, and that it's also a call then to the rest of us to hear those stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Amber, this has been so wonderful. And I feel edified and enriched for having had this conversation. And so thank you so much. Um, anything else before we, that is pressing our way, you know, on your heart that you want to share before we end? Well, thank you again for extending the invitation and um, for scheduling this. It's been really lovely to talk to you and to make this connection. Um, I think in conclusion, I would just say that 
um, you know, I really believe in the the law of opposition, <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, I I've noticed that as I have allowed myself to surrender and descend deeper and deeper into my own pain and my own doubts and questions and trauma, um, that there has been an equal and opposite harvest. And mm. I have been blessed with a greater and more divine understanding of who I truly am and who my mother is. And um, in those moments of clarity and connection, I feel very strongly that the recompense that is available to women, whether or not they've suffered directly and personally from something like sexual assault. Um, I, I will say that I think sexual assault is a great microcosm for studying um, how to find healing and sovereignty after being disempowered. Mm. I truly believe that every woman <laughs> has experienced disempowerment on some front, even mm -hmm. if it's just from her mothers and her grandmothers it's something we carry mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in those moments of clarity and connection with eternity and with heavenly mother I have slowly been learning that there is a recompense um, for us and recompense isn't descriptive enough a word um, when God promises that he will open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so big that there isn't room to receive it. That's more what we're dealing with here. Um, mm. Our eternal destiny and our relationship with our mother, um, I think will feel like that, like a blessing that's poured out of the windows of heaven and that it's too big. It's too glorious. It's it's just too much. It's it will just wash away and consume um, all of these pains. And um, yeah, I guess I just want to offer that um, as a comfort or a gift or a perspective um, that I really cherish. That um, on the other side of this experience is something that will um so far exceed our expectations that to say it makes everything worth it it isn't enough it, it doesn't yeah. convey enough how glorious and happy and fulfilled we will be when we meet her and when we meet ourselves again If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.